The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. Uh, this is episode 354. I've got Scott Bird here with me. Um, I also have Linda and Lynn talking about uh, the Facebook article. We'll conclude that today. Um, Scott, before we get to all that, uh, we've been talking about essentials of a youth retreat. Uh, I'd love for you to share with us an essential of a youth retreat. Yeah, so we've actually got a retreat uh, coming up in uh, seven or eight days. Um, And one of my favorite things about this retreat that we're doing is we don't allow anybody to bring cell phones. Um, So it's just our group. We go out in the middle of nowhere and uh, it's just a weekend retreat, but uh, I think our students have really enjoyed it in the past to kind of get a break from their phones, like keeping up Snapchat streaks and that kind of thing. I don't know if people really do that anymore, but, um, Mm -hmm. but I remember one student said that it was just like a huge burden off of him that he didn't have Mm -hmm. to keep up with these, 85 streaks or however many he had going. Um, and two, it kind of fosters community mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. So uh, I would say that's essential for w- weekend retreats, kind of short retreats. You yeah. can, it's not too demanding for them to leave their phone at home for a couple of days. Yeah. So, so an essential is not bringing any kind of electronic device. Is it just smartphones? You say games, anything like that? Yeah. Any kind of, electronic device. I mean, I don't really know what else people are bringing, maybe like a Nintendo switch or something. Uh, but yeah, we just, well, we say nothing with, um, access to the internet is, is how we put that. But if somebody brings like a switch or something, we'd probably ask them to put that away just because we want them to hang out and Mm -hmm. get to know each other. And they can't, we don't want them to be able to escape into technology. Yeah. And I've got to ask you, um, do students sneak stuff on, on trips and have you caught them doing that? I mean, I would assume yes. <laughs> well, they probably do sneak things, uh, but I haven't caught them. I mean, I've, we've had students like a day into the retreat, like, Oh, we're not supposed to have our phones. You know, they act like they don't know. So yeah. then we'll take it up. But mm-hmm. usually the other kids will tattletale, uh, cause they're not, they don't have <laughs> that right. So they're not going <laughs> to let somebody else have that either. Nice. That's your little policeman running around helping you out with that. Pharisees. <laughs> hey, and also parents, how do they react to this? Because I know, and I can't remember if we were working together, Scott, when this happened, but I definitely had a parent that was very protective and did not react too kindly to us uh, not allowing devices on a retreat. Um, how, how do you interact with them? Yeah, I've never had any pushback on this. Um, wow. You know, I've, I've probably done it. Uh, I don't know, 10 times, something like that. We do it a couple times a year and uh, never have had pushback. Parents are usually pretty pumped about it. Nice. Awesome. Well, Scott, thanks for, for sharing that. Uh, I also wanted to mention uh, our sponsor for today's podcast is For Life Apparel. Um, so people can go to forlifeapparel.com. Um, but later on in the episode, I'll give you some more information about that. But for now, here's Lynn and Linda.
Hey everybody, um, I have Linda and Lynn once again on our Technically Speaking portion of the podcast. Next week we will have Dr. Fesco of uh, Reformed Theological Seminary joining us. Um, if you tuned in last week, you know that we concluded uh, our discussion on the Jonathan Hyde article from The Atlantic. And right as we concluded, uh, Lynn brought up something kind of important, and uh, that's the gospel. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, you know, I would like to think that it was kind of woven throughout in some ways, and even the solutions, we, we want to be clear that, um, you know, the only solution is the gospel. So, I, Lynn, I think it's so important that you brought that up of let's not just assume that people think we kind of, you know, implied the gospel throughout. Let's be explicit in the way that the, the gospel answers this, because, you know, as we, we look at that article, and if anyone reads that article, there are other solutions that Jonathan Haidt points to as, you know, taking congressional action on, you know, a company like Instagram. But we as believers need to think um, differently because we have the only solution there is to all of life's problems, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so, Lynn, thanks for, for bringing that up. How, how about you lead us off in this, and let's just uh, discuss a little bit of kind of the gospel's um, answer to some of these problems. Yeah, um, and thanks for being open to that. And I, I do think it was woven in there, right? Like, uh, And praise the Lamb that the Holy Spirit's at work. Uh, so the, when I was done reading this article— I thought this doesn't address the core issue here, mm -hmm. right? Like this addresses symptoms of the core issue and, mm -hmm. and fill in the blank, right? Like this is a symptom of misplaced identity. This is a symptom of misunderstood value, right? Or searching for value. This is a, a, a symptom of not understanding your God-given um, purpose and worth and all of these things um, that this uh, that that is actually the root of why we can be so affected by social platforms or the opinions of other people is because we're still yeah we're still searching for the identity that God's given us from before birth right um, I was reading a uh, Charles Spurgeon has this quote, and he says, the mind can descend far lower than the body, for it is there, um, for in it there are bottomless pits. Mm. Um, and the gospel speaks to those bottomless pits, right? Um, like we see it quite often in the Psalms of like, why have you forsaken me, God? Like that's a bottomless pit, right? That you might not, you won't see in a cultivated or curated Instagram feed. You won't see a bottomless pit likely, right? Um, and the gospel, what our students are hoping to receive through likes and comments, they actually receive in the gospel. Um, it, it can be found in the gospel, the assurance of identity and value and worth and all of those things. And so um, I think that's important for our parents to remember or our, our youth workers or anybody interacting with this and students to remember is like, even if when a parent tries to have a conversation with their student, about, hey, let's talk about how to navigate Instagram, or let's talk about how you're feeling about your body and why you think you need this. Or, um, yeah, I know you sent those photos um, or that you're posting photos like this. And this isn't who I know you to be. Is this who you want to be? Even if the conversation explodes in your face and all you or all you have to say is, let's just pray about this together. 
then you've communicated to them that even God wants to like wants to be involved in this conversation, that he wants to be invited into the pain and the searching that we have there and the um our our misunderstanding of um <laughs> our temporary uh place in this world um mm -hmm. and uh, yeah so I think that's I've, I was just asking myself okay when like how do we address this in the house how do we address this in the heart how do we address this in the church and I every everything if the only thing that you get to do is pray with your student about this um it at least opens the door in the conversation and communicates that this even this is important to God mm -hmm. yeah and that's such a, I mean such a good word just to, to say, look, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to, to do, but I'm going to pray with you. Um, let's just stop and let's let's pray now. Um, that communicates so much to the student, as we know God's word saying the Holy Spirit intercedes for us um, with with groanings, you know, that we don't understand. And um, so that's such a good word. And going back to your your quote, and did you say Spurgeon quote? Is that right? That the bottomless pits. Um, yeah, I just think of. Uh, so often that, um, and I'm forgetting the verse in Romans that, that talks about uh, us being inventors of evil. And I just think so often of social media as just an inventor of evil, that it's just uh, new and creative ways to display our depravity. Um, but yeah, just going back to that quote, it made me, made me think of that. Um, Linda, I'd love for you to, to respond to this as well. Yeah, there are a couple things that initially come to mind. Um, and one of the previous weeks I alluded to this idea that students need rest from the performance mm -hmm. of social media, you know, um, and I, I'm just seeing in so many ways that the pressure on students to perform in every avenue of their life is increasing and increasing and increasing. Mm -hmm. um, they have to do so many extracurriculars or sports, or whatever, and be so good at those. And those things are demanding increasing amounts of their time um and you know the pressure to have a good resume and all that is there <clears throat> add to that the pressure of social media needing to perform so many ways socially um, for others there's just so much pressure on them and they need rest and what christ promises us is rest um, Jesus tells us that he will give us rest for our souls, um, rest from the need to feel like we have to earn um, a favor from others in any other way. Um, I just think that 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 is so huge. You know, you think about the um, the resume that um, Paul talks about that he had in Philippians. We're actually going to go through that passage um, this coming Sunday with our students. And he says, you know, I had this amazing resume um, in my culture of who I was, but you know what, I count all of that a loss mm -hmm. compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Um, you know, and if we can help students see like all this stuff that you are trying to do to, to measure up what you can get from that is worth nothing compared yeah. to Christ and like right. rest, rest in that. Um, the other thing I would think about is just the isolation that happens around um, social media and the need for real human connection and, you know, the way that uh, social media can aggravate a lot of the stressors um, socially in someone's life while also um, decreasing the amount of actual social support they have 
Well, one of the great things when we're a Christian um, is that we not only are saved like by ourselves, but we're saved into a family and, and into a church body. Um, and we're reconciled with each other. And all of a sudden, um, it, it becomes okay for me to be vulnerable with others because I know that in Jesus, I am okay. And, uh, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, the, the low stakes, the stakes are much lower when I know that my identity and my worth is ultimately found in Jesus. Um, and that, that enables me to have that true community and connection with others. Uh, so I think those are some really vital ways that the gospel does speak to exactly what the students are going through and navigating all this social media stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just as you both were talking, I was thinking, yeah, they're going to steal all of what I was going to say. So I've got nothing left <laughs> to say, but no, I, I do think it kind of your point, Linda, about rest is kind of where, my, where my mind went. And, and I think more specifically thinking of refuge, just the, the idea of, of refuge that social media and really just smartphones, more broadly speaking, are the refuge for our students. And, and let's just be honest, for, for adults as well, that oftentimes, and, and pointing out, Linda, what you're saying, just all this resume building. I mean, our students are exhausted, you know, academically. Uh, they're exhausted, I mean, physically from all the extracurriculars. They are just exhausted. And so often what they do to deal with the exhaustion is they seek refuge in a device that actually makes them more exhausted. And so they're not truly resting. I mean, as you quoted, just Christ being able to give us rest on a deeper level than anything else, down all the way into our soul. Um, that, that students, and again, adults, I don't want to just pick on students, they don't know what it means to truly seek refuge in the Lord. Um, we don't know what it what it truly means to seek refuge in the Lord and, and to know that um, I'm thinking of that St. Augustine quote that we are made for, for thee and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in, in him. Um, that so often we are seeking refuge and rest in these um, places that, that can't ultimately do it. And I, I don't want to say that, yes, there's some escape that we can get from, you know, streaming movies, from getting on social media at times just to, to kind of escape and get away and to maybe be mindless for a little bit. Um, but, but it becomes a problem when that's our go-to when we're sad, um, that it's, you know, as I've said before, the example, you know, whenever a student walks into a crowded room and there's just all these people, all the, this sea of faces, they typically reach in their pocket and pull out their phone. And and that's their refuge in that, that moment, you know, they're, they're trying to find comfort, um, from that. And sometimes it's just texting friends, Hey, text me so I can look like I'm, you know, doing something, you know, um, but yeah, just I think it's important to, to talk to our friends, our, our students about this this notion of, of refuge and, and Christ being our ultimate refuge of, of hiding in him, of um, being secure in him, of being protected in him, being clothed in his righteousness. And um, just, you know, again, preaching the gospel to ourselves daily to remind ourselves of that truth. And that's where, where true rest uh, will come. Um, so Linda Lynn, before we close this out, anything else uh, to add? I mean, there's obviously so many other ways in which we can apply the gospel to this conversation, but any, any last words, Linda Lynn? 
we've exhausted the gospel. That's yeah. it. There's nothing else to it. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I think. Uh, that's, um, I what? Yeah, what I I think our encouragement would just be like, keep trying, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. no um, like the worst case scenario still doesn't end in sal- like a loss of salvation, right? And so, um, our students need help. We all need help in navigating these things. Um, and to dismiss it to like, um, uh, just well, I don't know what to do. Like, well prayer is really powerful if you just read scripture like that's really powerful um imaging good behavior those things are really powerful um but imaging yeah like helping our students navigate kind of like what Linda was talking about like the difference between authentic connection and actually just a performance-based uh, relationship right like helping um students so the I think the last thing is like just keep trying just keep trying don't give up don't result to extremes don't you know, forsake all social media, teach them how to manage these things. And that's going to involve um, failing and uh, how to, to navigate that well. So just keep trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's good. And again, just thank you for reminding us uh, to, to address this from from the gospel. And, uh, you know, if nothing else as youth workers hear this, just reminding everyone to, to don't just assume our students are getting this and that they know how the gospel speaks to this. I mean, goodness, for them to see the gospel of Jesus Christ has something to say to social media, something to say specifically to Instagram and all of these things um, just, you know, helps them, and I hate to use the word relevant, but helps them to see how relevant the gospel is uh, to 2022 and beyond. Um, So, Linda Lynn, thanks again for taking the time to have this discussion. This episode of The Local Youth Worker is brought to you by For Life Apparel. For Life Apparel is a new clothing brand whose mission is to provide high-quality clothing and accessories that spread the message of the worth and dignity of the unborn. They donate 25% of all profits to providing free ultrasounds for moms considering abortion. Use the code REFORMED15 for 15% off today. That's Reformed 15 for 15% off today. They have clothing for men, clothing for women, bags, all sorts of accessories. Be sure to visit forlifeapparel.com for more information. Walt, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks, John. This is always fun doing this with you. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm trying to remember how many times you've been on now. Do you have any idea off the top of your head? Four or five more uh, it might be it might be something like that but it's always fun i love doing this and as you know i love rym so anytime i get a chance to chat with you and you know work to put together stuff that the rym constituency can access i, I just pray it's helpful it's helpful to me so i'm well, glad i get to do this yeah i can assure you it's it's always helpful to us and um again those who listen to the podcast, know that um, Walt is no stranger uh, to the local youth worker. He's been on plenty of times. If you came to youth leader training this past year, uh, Walt was with us. Um, so people are f- pretty familiar, I would assume, with Center for Parent Youth Understanding, cpyu.org. But Walt serves as the president of that. He's, he's published multiple books. Um, and more recently, though, I'd love for you to, to talk about this nine marks article uh, that you just wrote i know at the time of this recording it's just been posted so just why don't you tell us a little bit about that most recent resource that you put together sure so yeah this was a great opportunity to be able to do this i got an email from the editors at nine marks and they told me uh, this was probably back at the end of 2021 but they told me they were getting ready to publish a new online journal and if anybody's seen their online journals they're great um 
they they just hit so many things at a at a deep theologically sound level and so uh they said we're going to be doing one in response to the whole thing is going to center around carl truman's book uh the rise and triumph of the modern self which if folks haven't read that they should um I, I, I said, I, I think it's one of the most significant books of the last two years. I've gotten to know Carl Truman. We've had him on our podcasts. Um, we've talked quite a bit. I think his ideas in there and how he traces history are just so important and, and so applicable to those of us who work in youth ministry, because as I've said so many times, uh, what Carl unpacks in terms of expressive individualism I would say that that is the number one trend right now in terms of cultural trends that are, uh, you know, shaping or misshaping or forming or deforming uh, kids and their families. And even I would say the church and how we do church. And so, you know, that whole concept of expressive individualism, that terminology is not original to him. He just puts some meat on the bones of things that Charles Taylor and Robert Bella have said. And so we've been talking about expressive individualism here for a long time. And so when that book came out, I thought, man, this is great. And by the way, um, just as we're recording this, I'll say that yesterday, uh, his his shortened version of that came out called Strange New World, mm -hmm. which is published by Crossway. And so if you haven't read the, the thicker, more dense version, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, you should read this, this newer version. It's really, really good. And I, you know, this is where uh, just as an aside, John, I think, you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of the liberal arts. I didn't always understand that. My my father told me before I went to college, you want to go to a liberal arts school to get a good, well-rounded education. And we've, by and large, jettisoned that idea in terms of higher education uh, and even, you know, high school and, and uh, middle school education now. But I think it's very, very important to read widely and to understand the ideas that maybe we're in existence years and years ago that have shaped the trends of today or misshaped the trends of today. And Carl actually does that. So long story longer. <laughs> Sorry about that. Now you're long good. story longer. The editor said, Hey, you know, Carl asked um, if we would talk to you about writing a response to this book from the perspective of somebody who's been in youth ministry for the long term, or maybe you've seen some of these changes take place. And certainly as a culture watcher with my work here at the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, uh, Carl thought that you could write a good response. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot knowing, man, this is Carl Truman. This is nine marks. I really have to dig in deep and, and get into this. And so what I hope came out of it was this article that I wrote. That's just one of many in this nine marks journal that man the articles are so good but it's just simply titled youth ministry and the rise and triumph of the modern self and in there i just work to show how expressive individualism has really taken root in our youth culture in ways that are so familiar to us that we don't even see it anymore and then talk about some responses you know um one would be four topics. The first thing I, I came back and just said, you know, here's four topics that I think we need to teach to. We, you know, we need to root ourselves in as as people in youth ministry and teach to with our kids. And then um, just ask some questions about some of the ministry practices that we engage in that are well-intentioned that might actually be promoting rather than pushing back on this notion of expressive individualism and, you know, being authentic to ourselves. It's really a matter of authority. And, you know, at the crux of what we do in youth ministry, or even as parents, it's, it's living under biblical authority and 
teaching that to our kids and teaching them to do the same, which is so countercultural, always has been, but especially in this day and age uh, that we're living in, it's it's increasingly countercultural and we'll get a lot of opposition for it. So that's what that article is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I've gotten to read the article and it's one of those I definitely want to go back and and reflect on some more, but it's very helpful. And I know some of that content as well is, uh, I think what you presented at, at youth that are training. And I know many youth, youth workers were greatly helped by that. I heard that from, from many. Um, so thanks again for your work in that. Thank you for continuing to, to strive to help other youth workers think uh, about this culture that they're, seeking to, to minister in as well as the, the students that are growing up in, in the midst of this. Um, and I know it's funny to kind of, to bring up some of this and to think of the um, sobriety of so much that's being discussed there and to kind of shift to what we're talking about today, which might be a little more lighthearted. Uh, those who good, who tune in, I need that. <laughs> I need I it too. Me too. Um, but those who tune into the podcast know that uh, what we're, uh, getting uh, several individuals to kind of reflect on their their teen years, um, and so Walt, you're, you're someone who's known by many uh, again as the president of Center for Parent Youth Understanding, and people have read your works, they listen to your your podcast, but only a handful of people I uh, would assume know teenager Walt Mueller. Um, so I'd love for you to tell us. Fortunately. <laughs> um, we know, hey, there's some pictures out there too. Uh, so those listening, just be on the lookout for uh, that, maybe posting on our uh, Instagram. Um, but hey, how, how would those around you describe what kind of a teenager you were from friends to family? What, they, what would they have said about teenage Walt Mueller? Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, when you asked me to do this, I went and pulled my high school yearbook out, which... Um, Man, that's painful. You want to keep those under wraps because when your kids see those, you know, automatically they go right to the pictures. Oh yeah. And then they go right to you and say, "Man, Dad, Mom, what were what were you thinking?" You know, <laughs> uh, which is always fun because it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, the kids I was ministering to in the 1980s, their kids are pulling out their yearbooks now, and with some of that big hair, uh, that that actually back then those kids thought that was awesome. You know, saw my high school picture and thought, "What a what a wacko that guy was!" And you know, now they're they're learning the same from their own kids. So, but I, I pulled that out because I, I wanted to know what my friends were writing in there. I haven't read that for decades, probably it smells musty. Um, so that was kind of fun, but I also recently, and I think, you know, this, John, we did one of our youth culture matters podcasts with my ninth grade youth pastor. That's right. Bill Douglas, who has been teaching for years at Covenant Seminary. I know many people are familiar with Phil, but when he was a seminary student, uh, my dad, who was pastor of our local Presbyterian church outside of Philadelphia, brought Phil in uh, on weekends to do youth ministry, and he had a pretty profound impact on my life. So it's interesting, you know, like, so in that, some of my old uh, high school youth group friends, so I was in ninth grade at the time, so I was on the younger scale of our high school youth group. And so it's enabled me when we did that podcast to reconnect with some of the older students who were in the youth group. And it's funny because Phil had said he thought I was a fairly quiet guy, which was a shock to me because I've never been accused of that. But I guess when I was in ninth grade, I was, and I asked a couple of the folks who were older, you know, is that how you remembered me? I mean, was I really that quiet? Oh yeah. Yeah. You were fairly quiet. So I think when I was around the older folks, I was somewhat quiet. Um, but around my own peers, you know, the way that they would describe me, 
was a little bit different from that. And <laughs> so I went back like in the yearbook here, you know, there's, they did all those, I don't know what they call them in the yearbook. Um, you know, your name, your nickname, um, what else? Was said, so they had nicknames. Uh, what, what's Walt Mueller's nickname? Well, at the time, they just put Walt. That was my nickname. That's how. That's how they like. You didn't write any of this. It was all your friends who were, you know, filling in all the blanks here. And what they did was they kind of tabulated it and put it in. But that's another story because I did have a couple of nicknames. Which, if you want to ask me about them later, uh, I will divulge <laughs> off, what those off are. Here. No, no, no. I'll, I'll, I'll answer them on here because before they see, so what people need to understand is um, I, I grew up in uh, outside of Philadelphia and was in one school district and one community, uh, Jenkintown, Pennsylvania uh, through eighth grade. So if anybody watches uh, the TV show, the Goldbergs, um, they filmed that in California, but that's an actual family that grew up maybe a half a mile from me. I know where their house is. I wouldn't even say it's a half a mile as the crow flies, uh, but that's an actual place, Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, 19046. That was my zip code. That's where I grew up. And so I was there through eighth grade. And when we moved there, when I was three years old, you know, my name was Walter Mueller. And you know how kids like will come up with nicknames. And so a couple of the guys who were in the neighborhood who were two years old or five years old at the time, they thought that my name sounded like the word watermelon. <laughs> so you can see, you know, like for a kid and how their brain works. So that's what they always called me in the neighborhood. It they eventually called you got, watermelon? Yep. For the first couple of years, we lived there. And uh, then it got shortened to melon. And uh, <laughs> then eventually, by the time I was, you know, older, late elementary school and in middle school, uh, junior high, it was shortened to mel. So I still remember the kids coming to the back door and saying, uh, Mrs. Mueller, can Mel come out and play? And that's what I answered to. So when I moved, I, I, I was able to shed that nickname. And um, that did not follow me into our new neighborhood. There's only one school district over, but it seemed like forever, you know, mm -hmm. just three miles away is how we moved, but it was another world for us, you know, no cell phones, no smartphones, nothing like that, no internet. So, you know, I was, it was like going back there was like going back to another country. And so I was able to really reestablish myself in some new ways. And that was part of it. So eventually, you know, if you just shorten my last name to the first part of the last name, Mueller, that became the nickname and then uh and then walt so yeah you can say it if you want john but it was you know mule. Yeah, mule. Just yeah so i got that well, all the time yep well it's interesting too that the variations watermelon to melon to mel um, yeah that's how the kids in the neighborhood knew me yeah and then mule okay mule that's yeah. a pretty good one that's I don't know, well bad. yeah until you start to think about other names for that particular animal okay so and uh, that, then, that came out uh <laughs> Oh, from time to time, you know, when we'd be playing football or, you know, someone would get upset with me, they'd call me, you know, another name, a biblical name for a yeah, mule. That's right. right? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So, look, yeah, you, so that you're was my nickname. <laughs> you're, uh, this is great, by the way. It's great to, uh, some of these uh, nicknames might pop up now uh, that you've shared this. So, we'll, we'll see. But you're bringing up school yearbooks. Um, oftentimes we find they're, you know, most athletic, most likely to succeed, most courteous, class clown. Which category best described you? Did you did you have a category you were assigned to? Um, but even if not, which one which one would have been 
most accurate. No, no I didn't. I didn't get a category assigned to me. What they did was they tell us what, you know, my friends would say what my future was. They gave adjectives to describe me expressions that I would use when I talked. And then they would, they listed what I like to do. And, um, so I can just tell you from that, I don't know why this came up the future. My friends said I would be a football player. Um, that, that, that obviously is not what I'm doing, but the adjective, this is, this is quite telling. And I'll admit this, um, it's just one word, goofy, <laughs> you know, just kind of the silliness, I guess. And then my expression was, yeah, sure. So I must've been questioning everything at that point in time. And then my likes were a combination of prior play football, comma, goof off. So that was it. Yeah. So but, maybe class uh, clown that, that might've been, um, you know, I, I was probably more reserved in school than I was in my, my friends, my, my friend, my, my group of friends in the neighborhood. And then also in youth group, that was, that was my primary thing. I was not into, um, the party scene and I just had no desire for that. I think part of that was the healthy deterrent of uh, my parents, and, you know, what would happen to me if I did choose to be a part of that? I was the oldest, so I was a rule follower in, in many, many ways. Um, you know, at least when it came to the kinds of things you could get caught with. But, yeah, I, I actually, there's an interesting story, John, from high school that this will tell you a little bit about who I was. So uh, I think it was a Monday because I was ex ex exceedingly tired. We may, may, may have been away on a youth retreat. And youth workers know this. When you bring your students back, they haven't slept a whole lot. So getting up and going to school on a Monday morning after a weekend away on a retreat is a difficult thing because you're, you're tired, right? So I had, uh, this was probably early afternoon after lunch. So I'd been to my school lunch, which actually makes you more tired, right? And so I had a, um, a history class uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it was, I think it was 10th grade government class with Mr. Huddleston. And he was one of the teachers that I liked and who liked me. I can't think back and think about, I, I don't have a whole lot of teachers who were, you know, people who I thought, you know, really took an interest in me, but Huddleston, HUD, as we called him, um, you know, because of his interest in sports and things he was, and he was a coach as well. So, you know, he was a good guy, but I, I sat, um, about middle of the middle of the middle of the uh, middle of the rows from front to back, but on the left side, farthest away, I sat by the window. So farthest away from the door to the room and the door to the room was in the front of the room. So, so picture that. So I must have put my head down, you know, like in fifth period government class, cause I was so tired and I fell asleep. And it was one of those sleeps. That's like, you have no idea who you are or where you are. You're just <laughs> nap faced the whole bit probably drooling. Well, when I woke up, you know, I was like, oh my goodness, where am I? What's going on? And what was interesting was I was no longer in my 10th grade government class, but I was in a 12th grade world history class. It was the same classroom, same desk, but now the seniors were in there. He had let me sleep through the bell, <laughs> through the group. And I think he must've told them, let's see how long this guy sleeps. And I was probably a half an hour into that next period class when I woke up. And of course, as I look around, my eyes were like saucers, like where that, where the heck am I? What is going on here? And 
you know, and I just got up and ran out. And of course, it was all seniors laughing. So that was sort of a devastating day. And unfortunately, there were some senior girls who were cheerleaders who I really looked up to her in my youth group who were in that room and, you know, never let me forget that. But yeah, so that <laughs> was a- one of those high school stories that just, you know, like you're the younger kid and you do something yeah. really, really stupid. So mm. I do have to say just, yeah, props to that teacher. That, that's, that's a great prank to pull on a student when they, when they fall asleep in the classroom. Um, well, I didn't like it at the time, but I got to tell you, being in youth ministry, I do that sort of thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's great. You know, that's That's just got, and, and with a smartphone now I'd, I'd catch it to be on YouTube. So oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Th- thank goodness those weren't around. Um, so look, Hey, another milestone, um, for teenagers is, uh, getting their driver's license. Uh, what do you remember about getting your license, learning to drive first car, just that whole process? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's interesting because my experience with that is not what the experience of, of kids is, you know, today, because kids today, they just aren't as eager to get that. I mean, I was counting down my, to my 16th birthday from, I think the time I was 14 and uh, actually, this is interesting, John, you asked about my first car. Um, I actually bought a car that ran. Uh, it was a 1964 Chevy and it was black, uh, you know, hard top. And I bought that when I was 15 with my own money. My dad allowed me to buy it. And I still have the bill of sale. It hangs on a bulletin board in our house and fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to tell you what I paid for it. $25. It was, it was amazing. And um, so that thing sat at the back of our driveway. We had a driveway that was probably about eight to nine car lengths long. And I would go out there every day, start that thing up. And I would just drive up and down the driveway, forward, reverse, forward, reverse. Actually had my first accident in that car in my driveway because I backed into our basketball pole. Uh. But that was my first car. And then, you know, when I, when I then learned to drive, you know, it was, it was a little bit quicker now or quicker then than it is now, I think for kids to get their license because people weren't, you know, the authorities weren't as, uh, you know, they weren't as, uh, as strict as they are now knowing some of the issues of the teenage, (laughs) teenage brain and, you know, risk-taking and that, but I did get my license and I will say, um, you can ask me about this. There were a couple of risks, car risks that I took that I'm thankful I never got caught with and I didn't kill myself or somebody else. But, um, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, getting a license was, man, that was just com- like complete freedom and mm-hmm. being able to take the car and go places was, was just amazing. Now, now this, this first car, the, the $25 one, um, <laughs> did, did it have any kind of, uh, I know cassette would not have been around eight track. Was it just, no, radio? it was, no, it was uh, an AM radio. And I, by the way, I never put that on the road. Um, I wound okay. up selling it because my dad had purchased another, uh, really nice. So this was, this would have been 72. He purchased an eight-year-old car, uh, another 1964 Chevy, which man, I wish, you know, now, you know, I'm old. Cause I'm talking about all the cars that I had that I wish I still had. I mean, I had some amazing vehicles that would be worth a lot of money today. And that's certainly one of them, you know, like in the low rider culture, those 64 Chevys are there. They are gold. Mm -hmm. And, um, but so we had one of those and that's what I drove. And I did kind of trick that out a little bit. I put a, uh, 
I put an eight track player in there. There you go. Yep. All yep. Right. That's how old I am. AM so FM eight track. So, so give us, you know, you hear eight track. Um, all I know is, okay, you could not rewind eight tracks. You just had to play them through, flip them over, play them. Again, well, you could and... fast. You, well, you didn't flip them. You could fast forward them. Okay. And it was just a loop because there were that, you know, they would, I think it was uh, cause it was stereo. There were actually four levels that the tape would jump to and run at uh, track one, two, three, and four, even though it was called an eight track, there were stereo. So, you know, track one had two tracks, two had two tracks, so forth and so on. And so you just put it in and you let it, you let it, you know, run through and, and you could fast forward it. So you could get to okay. like what songs you wanted to listen to. Okay. And so what, what songs would you have been listening to back then? What, what eight tracks can you remember? Uh, what kind of music were you listening to back then? Well, I, I tell you, you know, my, my favorite was, uh, and I had all their albums. I still have all their albums. I just don't listen to them as much anymore. Uh, was Chicago. I love the band Chicago, you know, Chicago transit authority when they first came out. And one of the reasons that I, I loved them so much was that when I was in, um, I think it would have been eighth grade, like 1969. It was, I think it was eighth grade. And I was back in the old school district, Abington school district before we moved. Um, one of my favorite teachers, I remember her name, Miss Margolis was our music teacher. And we were in this tiered music room. It had great Harmon Carden speakers up on the wall, a good, you know, stereo system you could crank. And I heard um, rock and roll music for the first time through good speakers in that room. And it just grabbed me. And, um, and I remember that she had us deconstruct, she was having us deconstruct music in the first track that she put up for us to listen to. And, um, you know, do it was, it was, uh, does anybody really know what time it is by Chicago, oh, Yeah, which was off their, their first album. So, you know, like I've gone back, I've seen them in concert and, uh, I don't like seeing them now because it's more, more like a tribute band and just kind of hokey, but you know, I go back and when they had their original guitarist, uh, Terry Kath, who who died tragically several years after that, um, you know, that was I mean, that was good cutting edge stuff. And so, uh, you know, I was listening to that. Of course, it was a, it was the late 1960s. And so there was a lot of music that was really taking issue with a lot of the social causes of Vietnam War at the time. And, um, you know, so I listened, you know, I listened to a lot of that. Mm hmm. Yeah, is it what about posters on your wall? What, would you have had any posters on your wall? Uh you know what? I'm trying to think back. I mean, I think most of my stuff in my room was related to my love for sports. And you know this, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, just a rabid fan, especially the Phillies. So, you know, where where I grew up before we moved, you know, so I was in the Abington School District, then we moved, as I said, you know, 15 minutes away to the Upper Dublin School District. Uh, when I was in the Abington School District, living in the Jenkintown area, that was a day and age when, um, you know, there was very little media other than, you know, three stations on the television. And then you had a transistor radio. And so I inherited this love from my grandfather and from my dad for the Phillies and would listen every night, you know, with a little single earbud in my ear to the to the Phillies and then of course watch them on television and in that neighborhood back in Jenkintown um, I actually grew up with uh, three friends whose dads had all played for the Phillies and then we had other guys in the area who who were actually playing for the Phillies at the time I'd never seen them in the neighborhood but 
um, you know, these were, these were my heroes. And I knew baseball players weren't making the money they're making now. So Mm -hmm. they lived in these neighborhoods, but the the Phillies, you know, um, back in the 1960s, we we actually had a guy who was national league rookie of the year who went to our church where my dad was Mm -hmm. pastoring and his kids were, you know, I knew his kids, they lived a block and a half up the street. So that fueled my interest. And, um, you know, cause those guys were, were like neighbors, but they were also heroes. And so, mm-hmm. um, it was all sports stuff, you know, like I had a subscription to sports illustrated magazine and would just devour that thing cover to cover. And, um, yeah, so it was all, it was pretty much all sports. Well, uh, yeah. Along those lines too, as I mean, you say, uh, you know, these are neighbors, but they're also heroes. W- what about early role models? These could be, um, sports, uh, you know, ath- athletes, these could be parents, uh, siblings, yeah, what are some role models for you? Yeah, well, you know, on the sports thing, I had um, two guys who played for the Phillies that I just um, was enamored with, you know, and and um, when they when they both wound up leaving the Phillies, one, you know, both being traded, uh, that was devastating to me as a boy um, because these were the days before you know sports free agency, so your team was your team, right? And for them to, to get traded, somebody was just, you know, being a trader in terms of, you know, TRA, ITO, or in terms of trading them, you know, you're disrupting my whole childhood. But the two guys, one was a guy uh, named Dick Allen. When he came up with the Phillies in 64, he was a rookie of the year, Richie Allen. And just an African, it was an African-American guy who endured a lot of the, the racism at the time. It's been interesting for me to read about him. He just died um, last year. They're, they're still trying to get him into the Hall of Fame, and he deserves to be there. Uh, but, you know, when I was playing baseball, um, I either wanted his number, number 15, because he was a hero to me, or it was a guy who played right field for the Phillies named Johnny Callison, who lived near us, although I had never seen him in the neighborhood. Um, but he was number six, and so he was my other hero. So those guys were... You know, I actually got to, uh, this is kind of a fun thing. Uh, we had a local park that was built by a, a philanthropist who lived down the street from us. And it was just for our community. And they had a, a semi-professional baseball team in there. I didn't realize the team was there till I drove in with my parents one time. And their their uniforms, it was a Sunday afternoon, their, their uniforms were just like the Phillies uniforms. And I thought, oh my goodness, the Phillies are playing in Alberthorpe Park. And sure enough, it wasn't the Phillies. It was the Jenkintown Quakers. But the fun part of this story is I actually got to be a bat boy for them on several occasions. And some of their players had played for the Phillies. The manager at the time uh, had played for the Phillies. And when he retired, Johnny Callison actually came and played for that team a few times. So that was, that was kind of fun as well. But, you know, I guess what I'm telling you, sports was a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. Probably boring people like crazy now, but <laughs> I loved it. You know, and no, I still I mean, love my Philly teams. Pretty incredible uh, to think that you got to interact with some of these, uh, you know, professional athletes. Um, now that's that's great. Uh, and look, if if you could, if you could uh, take young Walt out for a cup of coffee, or, or I guess young Walt probably wouldn't be drinking coffee. Um, I don't know what would young Walt have been drinking, by the way, as a teenager. Uh. So, uh I don't know, probably Coke or something like okay. that, or Dr. Pepper. You know, I didn't drink coffee until I got to seminary. That's where I picked up that, <laughs> hey, that good habit. That, that was me and, as well. Yeah, I did not yeah. until until seminary. So taking Young Walt out for a, a Coke or Dr. Pepper, um, what, what's the truth you think Young Walt needed to hear? What would you like to, to tell your younger self? 
Well, it's actually something that, you know, I often refer to, and I think it, it it's good for me to recount this today because it was something my dad, well, let me give you two things. They're both things my dad drilled into me. One was, um, you know, he would often say to me, because I, I, I would I would default more often than not to feelings over rationality. And I think that's pretty typical of a lot of teenagers, but that was part of my makeup. And I think it still is. And he was a more rational guy. It wasn't that he was unemotional, um, but, you know, he would, I'd make a bad decision or I would share some idea with him and he'd say, you know, you're, you're far too emotional. And I really, emotionally, that was hard to take, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like it would, it would get me upset, obviously. And uh, I would ask him about that and he would explain it. Someone once said, you know, sound travels slowly, which tell a kid when they're 15, they don't hear till they're 25. And, mm-hmm. You know, that lesson from him became more and more real over the years. And just about everything he told me when I was a kid that I pushed back on became real, more real to me over the years. So I really appreciate he was a very wise man. He just died two years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I learned a lot from him with that. So about emotions. The other thing was, um, you know, and he never said it this way, but, you know, watch out for the idols of your heart. Watch out for the idols in the world. And he lived that. That's how he spoke that to me. So I mentioned that we grew up in Jenkintown. Jenkintown was uh, where we lived. The part we lived in called Rydal was very, um, it was a very wealthy, super wealthy, well-to-do community. We were there not because we were wealthy, because that's where his church was. And so we lived, you know, in, uh, he was in the Reformed Episcopal Church at the time. So we lived in what was called the rectory right next to the house. But, you know, we had uh, literal multimillionaires all around us. Um, when I go back, I'm stunned to see a lot of what's going on. I mean, our, our homes were built on, you know, like where I live now in Lancaster, our, our homes were built on farmland. Well, back then outside of Philly, Philly, our homes were built on estates that had closed down. And so you still had, you know, vestiges of that with the state houses and some of the gatehouses. A friend of mine across the street lived in a gatehouse from an estate. And, so all that to say, there was a lot uh, around us. People were well-to-do, and I often lamented that. And my dad said, you know, we, we, we live the way we live be, uh, by circumstance. We live the way we live by choice, and we live the way we live because we want to honor the Lord. We don't want idols to take us over. And I remember one time a new kid moved into our neighborhood. I'll never forget this. And I was out on a Saturday morning with my dad and I think one of my brothers, my dad had us you know, not playing. We weren't allowed to play that morning. He had us waxing his car and he'd never bought a new car. And we're waxing this car. It was only a couple of years old. And a new kid had moved into the neighborhood. And one of the neighbors was walking him through, stopping in front of each house and telling this kid, you know, who lived there. And he got to the end of our driveway. This was one of my friends. And he said to the new kid, and this is where old secondhand Mueller lives. Everything they get is secondhand. It's not new. And I remember just feeling like my, my, like my whole being was crushed and just, Hmm. you know, I, I, it just, it was just this feeling of being violated. But now I look back on that and I'm going, you know what? My dad and mom made choices that were really good choices. And so um, they taught us that things were not most important in life. It was rather our relationship with the Lord. And my dad was very thrifty and, you know, I admire that. Um, he was very wise, a good steward of his money, always gave to missions and just was a, 
you know, into the church and was a huge model. So um, I think in that conversation with myself, I would have talked about that. Don't be too emotional. Listen to your dad and don't trust in your things. That stuff is, it never fulfills. It never fills. And, and I think both those, both those lessons have shaped how I do ministry in today's world. Wow. That, that's amazing. It's amazing just to think of one little passing comment like that and how that can resonate, you know, all these years later. I mean, I know we, we all can point to that and, uh, you know, it could be this, but, but do you have a significant childhood event that you can think back that the Lord used to, to shape you? Um, I mean, it could be this and just kind of elaborating on that, or can you think of something else when you kind of hear that question, one significant childhood event that the Lord used to shape you? Yeah, that's a great question, you know, because I've often said that, um, and I, I say this humbly because I don't intend to ever do it, but I, I used to say if I ever write my memoirs, chapter one would be pretty easy. It would go from 1956 when I was born to the year 2000, and it would just have one sentence. It would say, I've had an easy life. Hmm. It wasn't until later that I started to have events in my life that really, uh, you know, began to shape me in some in some powerful ways. But, I, you know, I can think of two. Um, two events that, you know, had some significance. One was, um, you know, we had uh, in our youth group, I had a, a dear friend, female friend who was the same age as me. And she had a boyfriend who did not come to the youth group who was older. And uh, he was, he was killed in a horrific um, accident, which alcohol was involved. And he and the other guys in the car were had been drinking. And I just remember walking through that with her and seeing her grief and learning maybe for the first time about, you know, decisions and, and how decisions, you know, really affect us, um, down the road. Um, you know, just how, you know, like every choice we make, I always say it's every choice we make, we're choosing sides. And every choice we make determines will determine what the next step and every step after that will be. And so that was pretty significant to me, just at the level of choices and and even starting to think about death. Because when you're a kid, you know, you think you're gonna you're gonna live forever. Um, mm -hmm. The other one came in a conversation um, regarding, and it was a little bit later in my life um, regarding grace. I don't think I'd ever really understood grace. And a youth pastor explained grace to me as I was questioning how God could, you know, ever love me uh, with the brokenness that I saw in my own life. And when grace was understood, or it was, was explained to me, and my parents had taught me this, but, you know, sometimes it takes a youth worker to say something. And oh, yeah. so it was as if scales fell from my eyes. And that was a very emotional moment that, um, I still remember as being kind of a watershed moment in my life to understand the cross and, and understand Christ and Christ and God and his grace. Yeah. What, what age did you say that was? Uh, that was later in my, late in my teenage years. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Um, Walt, I know we're, we're about to start wrapping this up, but, but I'd love for you to speak to, to parents and to youth workers uh, a minute. And first just kind of along the lines of parenting, um, What's some of the best parenting advice anyone has ever shared with you? Uh, when yeah. you think of kind of all the words throughout the years, what, what are some of those things that come to the top? Yeah. Well, again, I'm going to go back to my folks and because uh, the best parenting advice that, advice that I ever got 
was was taught or caught. It wasn't necessarily taught. Um, but then as I got older, I began to, to hear people talk about this. Oh, yeah, my mom and dad did that. So, you know, so when I grew up in that neighborhood, um, one of the things that was really interesting to me was that I really didn't know anybody else's dad. There was one kid in the neighborhood that I really got to know his dad. I lived there for 10 years and 10 formative years where you're out playing, you're in other kids. So all through elementary school and junior high. Right. And uh, I only got to know one dad and he was a, he was a boatload of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone else's dad was just so tied into their work. They were physicians, lawyers, uh, owners, presidents of companies and, you know, they were all just these, these high level stress-filled jobs to the point where they weren't really around their kids. And when they were, they weren't engaged. Like I remember a couple of guys, they would typically be home just on a weekend. And instead of spending time with their kids, they were always out washing and waxing their, you know, cars, collector cars and, you know, nice cars. I mean, I've always liked cars, but, um, so the, the thing that, that struck me as I got older, because one thing I didn't like a whole lot when I was a kid was all the neighborhood guys would come to my house to play outside. And one of the reasons was I learned later when I would talk to them as we were adults was your dad was around, your dad spent time and, you know, he was out there playing ball with everybody and running around with everybody. And so, you know, I think spending time with your kids, kids are hungry for relationships. That's, that's a huge thing. Uh, my dad, Early on, you know, a woman once asked me when I was like four, four years old, five years old, you know, after church one day, you know, do you love Jesus today? You know, I hate it when people ask that of pastor's kids, right? They put them on the mm-hmm. spot. I said, no, I hate Jesus. And she was just in total shock. My dad witnessed this and, and she was smart enough to ask a follow-up question. She said, well, why do you hate Jesus? And I said, because he stole my daddy. Mm-hmm. And my dad talked to my mom about that. And she said, look, it's, it's clear you're, you're gone most every night of the week. You're not around. You're at church for meetings and things. And he changed. He did a total about face on that, told the church, you know, uh, either you let me have most of my evenings off or I'm gone. I can't do this. I want to be with my kids. And so I wound up having a dad who, you know, you know, was really, really good about that. So that was one lesson. And then the other lesson is, you know, stop with the pressure on your kids you know, spend time with your kids, stop putting pressure on, stop living vicariously through your kids. Just, you know, <laughs> just let them, let them be, expect them to do their best, but don't pressure them to be something that they're not. My parents never did that. Hmm. If I made a commitment and I wanted to back out of it. They had me stick to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could talk about numerous times that that happened, but it wasn't pressure. It was, you know, just a proper level of, you know, commitment. And I've learned a lot about commitment to Christ through that and, and hope and pray that that continues to serve me well for the rest of my life. Um, but those would be, you know, big things now. That's great. And there's so much there. I mean, just the, the example of your father and him backing off from work. And um, that, that's a great reminder to, to hear that. Uh, well, before we close this out, I'd love for you to speak to, to youth workers. Um, and I'd love for you to talk about some priorities uh, for them. And, and I'm talking about priorities of their, their personal life. Uh, maybe they're, you know, behind the scenes, their home life, not priorities as, you know, the, the, the youth worker in the ministry, but what are some of those, you know, behind the scenes priorities you'd like to impress upon them? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's a good question, John. And, 
you know, most of these, most of these, you know, they come out of experience and sometimes it's experience of doing good things. And sometimes it's experience that comes from doing the wrong things and having to reset. But I will say this, the first thing is, you know, whether it's as a dad or a mom or uh, a spouse, or, you know, as a youth worker, a church staff person, um, the most important priority, just, it's just getting, getting yourself grounded to the gospel to put that stake in the ground, because uh, I think two things pull on that. One would be just the tyranny of the urgent. We're busy these days. There's so many, um, you know, things that, that can uh, distract us ministry-wise that we get super involved in that. And the other thing is just, you know, the, just a constant, you know, if you see yourself as a pebble in a stream and the culture's running over you, the culture can wear you down and take the edges off you, edges, gospel edges that you need to have. And and so I would say stay grounded grounded in the gospel for the sake of your own kids, uh, for your spouse, for yourself, and then for the kids that you work with. So everything in the culture is pushing against that. So that would be one. And then I would say, um, don't make don't make ministry your, your mistress or your master. Um, you know, and, and I would say, listen to your spouse. Hmm. Um, I, I truly believe, cause it's been my experience that God gives us the spouse we need. And when they speak up about something, um, you know, you really need to listen. And, uh, I've been blessed with that for coming up on 40 years here in another month. So, hmm. um, you know, it's, congrats on that. Yeah. And then I'm not saying it's been all been easy. I mean, you know, us, John, and, and, uh, we're both, you know, bullheaded, um, bullheaded, you know, sinful fallen human beings, but it's been a, it's, you know, as I look back on it, it's been a beautiful thing with lots of bumps and difficult times, but, sure. um, just a, just a great and wonderful thing. So that's what I would say, you know, mm-hmm. to, uh, to youth workers. No, that's excellent, Walt. Yeah, there's a lot to chew on there, a lot more uh, to talk about. I mean, again, so many things that you said, I'd love to just kind of uh, to dig into uh, that alone. Um, but again, you're always gracious to come back onto the podcast. And so what will most likely have you on before uh, too long. Uh, Walt, look, you've got so much going on. We appreciate you just stopping, taking the time uh, to come and be on today. Thanks, John. You know, it's always fun, as I said, to do this. And and I hope, you know, like simple things from a simple life like mine might be helpful to others. So mm-hmm. hopefully there might be a nugget someone heard that that uh, would spark them and, and be helpful. Absolutely. Thanks again, Walt. Thank you. Oh, come and buy without money. Oh, come and feast without